Michelle. So where were you born? I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I didn't know that. Yeah, my dad was finishing up a PhD in Michigan, so we lived there briefly, and then right after I was born, we moved to Hawaii. So I kind of I thought you was were there born? very briefly, yeah. and then moved quickly to Hawaii and spent my elementary school years there. So that's your childhood memories are of Hawaii. Yes, definitely. Not of Michigan. Not of Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all of Michigan. Okay. Um, so please tell us a little bit about what that experience was like. And you, you say your dad was getting his PhD. He was. Um, was yep. he a professor? Or? He was. He, yeah, he was. He was a professor of music, and he was a singer, so tenor. And in order to get your PhD in music, you have to be um, proficient in every instrument in the orchestra. So as part of his work that he did for his PhD, <laughs> he had to learn how to play everything, from like the oboe to the trumpet to the timpani and wow. whatever. But he was a singer, and um, so he, yeah, he was a university educator for the whole of my life, and that took us to Hawaii and then to Wisconsin in the dead of winter, which was awful, and then to Minnesota, and then I came out west. Um, what was it like being, oh, let's talk about your mom too a little mm -hmm. bit, and then what was it like being uh, the kid of a professor? Did you feel like your expectations oh. were set well, uh, early yeah. on? So my dad is Japanese, born in Japan, came to the U.S. when he was 19, so we get all of the benefit of an educator and also like an intense Japanese tiger dad. So <laughs> academics in our house were everything. Like you couldn't breathe until all your homework was done, all the extra credit was done. You excelled in everything that you were doing academically. And then if you wanted to do music, that was kind of the next priority. And then athletics and friends came far behind that. <laughs> so that was what uh, my life was like. But yes, very a lot of very intense focus on academics in our house. My mom is from Oregon. They met on a blind date in California. And um, so growing up in a mixed race household, um, was not like I didn't even realize anything when I was living in Hawaii because everybody else kind of was mixed like me and lots of Asian, lots of Islanders. But when we moved to Wisconsin, <laughs> nobody at all looked like me. There were wow. like no Asians anywhere. Everybody was totally white. <laughs> and we got there and I couldn't get any shoes to fit my feet because they were so wide because I went barefoot my whole childhood. Um, so it was hard to find boots and it was the winter and it was just, it was the hardest adjustment ever. Um, but people in the Midwest are really kind and gentle people, which I love. And um, so they were really welcoming, but I always did kind of feel like an odd duck out because I think early on in my life, I had so many people around me who were like me. And then I felt like an other the rest of my time in the Midwest, which was kind of tough. Wow, and how old were you roughly when you moved to the Midwest? I went there for junior high, so what, oh how gosh. old is that? So tough time. Of yeah, yeah, Ugh. yeah, like 12, yeah. Ugh. Yeah, Wisconsin, but lots of cheese <laughs> and tornadoes, so, so, there. so you so got that. that. <laughs> what did you have in Hawaii? I mean, not yeah, very much. Not snow, no. <laughs> not tight shoes, so lots of life experiences. Do you, do you look back on Hawaii with, with sort of like that's a home, that's a, a, a sentimentality to it? Or? Yeah, there is definitely. I, I feel a connection when I go back. Mm -hmm. um, it's not the same when you're a tourist, right, staying in a hotel. But like when I go to the beach, I just remember kind of walking down the sand with my dad, 
poking, we call them blue bubbles. I don't even know what kind of jellyfish they were that would like wash up on the sand, but we would kill them. Oh. Um, you know, and, and at that time, way back in the day, you could still find real authentic puka shells on the beach. So we would look for puka shells and it was, it was like, a, it was a good little childhood. It was nice. And then, uh, not to disparage the Midwest at all, but what are your memories of the Midwest? <laughs> that it was really, really cold, the and yeah. they ate very different food than I was used to, lots of hot dishes. Mm. Um, and, hot but, as in temperature hot or spicy? No, hot? like, um, they call them hot dishes, they're uh, casseroles. Oh, yeah. huh. I didn't but know They didn't really have any casseroles in Hawaii at all. Um, and I remember when we moved there, it felt very, like, uptight, like people were really like, bah. Because um, in Hawaii, it's like cool if anybody wants to like stay over for dinner, like you stay over for dinner. If you want to sleep over, just crash on the couch. It's very, very laid back, probably like way too laid back. <laughs> um, but it was such a culture shock, I think, to me um, that it was a little hard to get used to. But I do, I, you know, I think that's kind of a difference between the islands and the mainland, just generally. And then the shock of Wisconsin winter was just like, good Lord. Was, was high school a continuation of that, or did high school signal a sort of settling in? High school was sort of a settling in, but mm. by high school, we moved to Minnesota. Mm. So he taught at Southwest State University, and um, we went to a really little town. It was 12,000 people. Um, the university was kind of the biggest enterprise there besides a corn processing plant. So um, it was it was nice though. It was nice to be in a small town. Everybody knew each other. Everybody knew each other's business. Um, but it was it was a nice place. Like people generally are really kind and warm in the Midwest and um, really ha like have good virtue kind of in their bones. Um, so I have a lot of fond memories of you know playing kick the can and going to keggers out in the country and stuff like that. <laughs> it was nice. Um, boring, but nice. <laughs> <laughs> so you finish high school and you decide you're going to go crazy and go where to, to college? Go to BYU Whoa. for college. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how did that materialize? So that was, um, both my parents had gone to BYU oh. and it was like academics in our house, it was just an expectation that you would go to BYU. It's the only workplace I applied. Thank heaven I got in. No safeties. Um, so yeah, that was, it was another real culture shock to come out here um, and go to BYU. And I, um, they had a really great um, opera program. So I, be, I was an opera major for a year and a half before I switched, um, decided that I would need to have a career where I, where I would actually make money uh, and be able to support myself. So I switched to communications and I studied PR and thought that I would, um, I would probably go into government PR, be like mm -hmm. a press secretary. And um, so I did that, graduated, I worked for, uh, in the Levitt administration for about a year and really didn't love government mm -hmm. PR, um, and then made the switch over to tech PR. And that was the start of kind of my tech journey in life. There's so much to unpack in I know. what you just said. <laughs> I know. <laughs> if we go back to, you know, there's, I've even held this perception. I do find the Midwest charming. Yeah. 
uh, the culture there. But I've always assumed a connection with Utah. That is, I've always felt like Utah had that same mm -hmm. Midwest charm, similar mm -hmm. culture, mm -hmm. uh, I thought. But you're mm -hmm. implying mm -hmm. it isn't the case. Mm -hmm. It feels different here. It's, I think it's really different here. So please tell us a little bit about that. Well, hmm. I mean, aside from um, religious differences. Yeah, big culturally. religious differences. Yeah. I would say um, there is, there is, well, how do I say this? Since it's being recorded, <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll we'll bleep it out. Okay, later. good. No, no, no. <laughs> now there there is a, there is a good string, I would say, and consistency from the people in the Midwest and the people in Utah, and that yeah. there's a real family orientation um, and a real um, a real I don't even want to say political, but just like a core belief in doing what's right yeah. for people. Yeah. Um, and I think that is probably the only consistency that I see. I think there's mm. something called, they call Minnesota nice. And I think you get a little bit of Utah nice too, where it's like, on the surface, it's just like, yeah, and behind it's like, no. <laughs> so there is, a, there is a little bit of that too okay. that I found um, a little challenging, I would say, with mm. Utah. But I think it's getting better. Um, I've been here off and on throughout my career and we, you know, decided proactively to come back to Utah after spending 10 years in San Diego. Some San Diego homies here. Um, and, uh, and it's been lovely. It's been really nice to come back. Thanks for that context. Let's, let's go to the opera piece. I mean, I vaguely <laughs> did, Yeah. Did you know that, I mean, obviously if you started there, was your passion opera? My, mm -hmm. that, that wasn't? Yeah. Yeah, I was a big singer. Wow. Um, I think a lot of it is, I, I think you, when, um, this is a very broad statement, at least mm. in my family growing up with an Asian father who was very um, performance oriented for his children, for his family, for everything, um, you always want to impress your parents and like live up to their standards that they've set. So I was like an okay student, but I, could sing. And so I trained with him and with some other teachers. Um, I was heavily involved in all kinds of choral activities when I was in high school, uh, then came out to college, started studying that, um, had some really great teachers and mentors. Um, but again, there was just sort of this, I think you get this in the creative arts too, is there's like some intense backstabby kinds of behaviors, a lot of competitiveness to get roles and those kinds of things. And I was like, this is not for me. I'm, I'm just gonna do comms and little did I know it was still gonna be the same thing. But um, <laughs> it wasn't as like emotionally devastating when you, um, you know, didn't get a role or whatever that was. But I do, I love singing and I haven't done it forever. Um, but I do really love it a lot. It's really cool. Do you, do you do it extracurricularly? I don't, no. I, I really haven't had time, but um, I would love to, eventually, maybe. I don't know That's how, but uh, Hale yeah. Center Theater, <clears throat> just kidding, <laughs> no. So was the transition to PR comms um, an ad hoc one, or was it a thoughtful, calculated? It was pretty calculated. Very, yeah, you're a very thoughtful. Yeah, I've always been a good writer. I think that storytelling comes naturally to me, and I do think that 
with the performing arts, there's always kind of this emotive story to tell in one way or another. So it seemed like it was sort of a natural thing for me. Um, and it was nice. I really liked um, the communications program at BYU in particular is very, very strategic in its orientation. And they had this very well-articulated formula that you followed um, identifying your audiences, um, speaking to their wants and needs, having a very clear objective, measurable outcomes that you are going to, and then setting up your strategic plan. It really has been a great foundation, I would say, for a broader marketing career, knowing how to target mm -hmm. and speak to those audiences in a way that is interesting to them, not just interesting to you. Um, and kind of bringing them in through a journey that you want them to go through. Very similar to kind of the musical performance side of life, but it's, it's, um, it is a great program if you can take that BYU culat we're in life. <laughs> <laughs> so knowing you as well as I do, and, and you know, we were, I was just alluding to this, I suspect I could totally see you pre-Excel doing a spreadsheet, you know, and to, to, to choose PR and, and comms. Yeah. Um, what else was your worldview like back then around what your future looked like? So for example, um, you would strike me as the kind of person who wrote down exactly when you might get uh, married or might have children <laughs> or might, like you're, you're that kind of planner. Is that I true? I am that kind or? of planner, yeah. So I had really big aspirations. Once I got like really set in PR, um, once I knew that government wasn't working out for me, mm -hmm. I wanted to get into tech because I knew that was where the opportunity was going to be. At that time, it was like pre-internet bubble. Mm -hmm. I'm dating myself badly. Um, but I knew that if I got into tech, that that would be a bigger, brighter future for me. So I set out actually a lot of intense goals to be um, a director level of marketing function mm -hmm. at a big company by the time I was 30. I also had like in my mind a six-figure salary goal. So I, I really did kind of set out a path for myself that I thought would define success along the way. Mm -hmm. And I did accomplish those things, but it was a different way than I had expected or thought would happen. Um, but I do think that setting goals and um, at least mile markers is something that's important for you in your career. And if the role that you have isn't getting you to that next place, then you have to decide, am I willing to go down maybe a different path than I'd ori originally thought? Or is this gonna take me to that mile marker that I really desperately want to get to? And then you can make a decision on what you're gonna do. And that mile marker was defined as you just, as you sort of a seniority level and an income level. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. And uh, please talk a little bit more about uh, sort of the, the trajectory that that took you down. And, and I, I obviously you have been in tech and you're incredibly accomplished in tech now. Yeah. Um, is, uh, let's, let's um, r retrospectively kind of go through the, the journey. Yeah. So I, um, I was working for the state of Utah. I decided that I wanted to get into tech. I started interviewing at a lot of agencies. I was downtown in Salt Lake at the time. Um, started interviewing at agencies and they all told me, if you don't have tech experience, we don't want you. And so it ended up that I was um, speaking with people at the Martha Felt Group. It was a big agency down in the, you know, a long time ago. Martha had been a long time noveller, um, had brought kind of 
a lot of that business with her when she started her own agency. And they had a lot of amazing clients and I really, really wanted that job so badly. And it was like an entry level PR coordinator job. Um, and so I volunteered. I said, if I work here for three months and I prove myself, will you hire me then? And they said, yeah, if you're gonna work for us for free. So I did that and then a month later they offered me a job. So that was my way of like saying, I, you know, I really, I really want this. I'm gonna make this happen. I was living on my credit cards, it was awful. Um, but I really, that's my, my way to break into tech and I'm so glad it happened that way. So I spent um, a couple years at the Martha Felt Group and then I went to another agency, Broder, Porter, Novelli, a bigger kind of internet or national name. Um, and at that time I was recruited to go start the PR function at Ancestry. They were still really small. They had just launched myfamily.com, which was kind of the precursor to Facebook. Um, and that was a really interesting time, um, 98-ish, 99-ish, right? The big tech bubble was just like swelling. All the um, devs were sleeping in the office on cots. It was like a really crazy, heady time. But everybody was just getting super burned out. And, um, and then Novell came knocking and asked if I would come over and do their internal communications and community relations. So I jumped, big international company, billion dollars in revenues, huge at the time, primary competitor, Microsoft. Um, and they had an interesting challenge with their internal comms. They had a CEO and a president who weren't very beloved by their you know, 4,000 employees. And we did a lot of research among the employees to figure out kind of where things were not going so well, and then created programs around those pressure points to try to alleviate that. Um, during that time, then I moved out to San Jose to be closer to the CEO, and we worked on a lot of really interesting programs, like early, like on in 2000, doing podcasts and those kinds of things for employees. Um, and uh, then came back to Utah uh, after the CEO left and ran my first major kind of broad marketing function, marketing programs for Novell. And um, at that point, I moved down to San Diego um, and worked in hardware for a few years. Uh, we were down there for 10 years, had a baby, uh, came back to Utah, had another baby, um, and um, have been at three companies since I've been back in Utah. Uh, was at a re-startup called Rise Point, which is, Sam was our mentor there and uh, learned an awful lot about the grind of that startup life and being so conscientious about budgets and how you're allocated money and how you're spending money and the return on investment. Um, and then over to Instructure, and it's been uh, a really interesting ride with them going, being public, going private, going public again, um, you know, managing a, a pretty good sized team and watching out for all of their, um, you know, well-being during COVID, it's, it's been a, an interesting time in my career, for sure. It's 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 amazing, Michelle, because I think from the outside, looking at successful people like you, it always seems like things must come easy. And yeah. um, circumstance, which I'm a huge proponent of appreciating, because not everybody gets circumstances that allow them to succeed. Yeah. But I love, what I love about your story, and I, I'm gonna ask you the question at the end before I make a couple of points is, is it a generational thing or is it a 
person thing. So mm -hmm. over the last 10 years, it's become on vogue um, not to set goals. Mm -hmm. You don't need to set goals. Mm -hmm. Let's just live them, right? The second, don't make them hard. Accept, be, yeah. accept where you are. Yeah. Be happier with yourself. Yeah. Why set ambitious goals? Mm -hmm. And then third, it's incredibly rare to find people who are willing to do the tough things. You, you met and said an example, you, uh, you reached out to a company and said, just give me a freaking chance. Yeah. I'll do whatever, I'll start at the bottom. Do you feel like that's a generational thing? Is it being the daughter of an immigrant? Um, is it something you were born with? And now as a senior executive yourself, and I know you see this as mm -hmm. the executive yeah. looking for people, what do, you th what do you think drives that in people? Yeah, I think um, you were elemental in helping me really understand while I was at Rise Point, this kind of trifecta of skill, will, and attitude. And I use that all the time to measure employees as they're considered for advancement in the company or as we're bringing somebody on. Kind of those three factors are really, for me, the distillation of the things that are most important for an employee. If they've got the skill, you can build it if they don't have the optimal skill level. I believe that a lot of people have the ability to really learn that really quickly. The will part is a big one to me because I think you have to have kind of that grit and tenacity. And I do think some of that can be learned, but a lot of it is just in you. Mm -hmm. Like if you're gonna have the will to overcome some of these obstacles that you have, whether they be health related or family related or environmental or work stress related, whatever that is, do you have the tenacity and the will to like get over that, over that hump? and get to where you can be successful again. And then the attitude, you know, we have people who have the will, but the attitude just stinks. And, and you've really got to get a good mix of all of those three. Um, and frequently I talk to my boss, Frank Maylett, I think he's been here before, about that skill, will, and attitude. And he frequently asks me, do you still, which one do you think is the most important one? Like, do you, are you still like on the will thing? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Because I think that if you have the will, you can achieve the skill and the attitude. Um, and um, for me, that is a, a really good measure. I think it's foolish for people not to have their own goals for their own career if their career is that meaningful to them. If you don't have goals where you're just like wandering aimlessly, it's like, I didn't know how to get here today, so I just punched it into my nav and followed the route. And if you don't have something like that, I think you kind of wander aimlessly. And I think you can, you can achieve more if that's what you want to do, if you have a goal that you're reaching for. Thank you for that perspective. Before I turn it over to the team, I have one, one last question for you around, you talked about wanting to impress your parents and make them proud, and certainly yeah. your dad. Um, do you still feel that way today? Do you still have that need? Uh, do you feel like you've made your mom and dad proud? Yeah, I do feel like I've made them proud. I, um, I have conversations with my mom a lot about um, you know, what's happening at my work and when I got promoted, talk to her about that. And she's like, man, I worked so hard in my career and I never got anywhere close to where you are. And I, it was such a strange context for me because for me, my mom, my mom was a nurse educator. Um, she was a nurse working the floor, working surgery, and then she decided to become an educator. She got her master's degree when she was 45, and then um, she became a nurse educator to train nurses in the hospital on how to do diabetes training and all kinds of other things. 
Um, so for me, my mom has always been such a great um, role model for me, right? Getting a master's degree late in life so that she could achieve in the final years of her career the thing that she wanted the most. Um, so I, I do think that I've made them proud. I think I have never been the um, academic that they wanted me to be. Everybody in my family has master's degree or um, uh, JD, except for me. I have no advanced degree, but I've been pretty good outside of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're such a disappointment. I know, Michelle. it's so oh, embarrassing. My gosh. <laughs> Thank you for uh, coming out today. With yeah. that, uh, <laughs> At least educating my family. <laughs> Thank you. Well, let me, let me turn it over to the team for any questions from you guys. First one is always the one that gets us started. It's usually Scott or Drew, right? Yeah, I, I have a question. Um, when you were at Novell and you were doing this internal, company culture is so important, and I'm sure you worked very hard. Do you think you moved the needle, or was it the the leadership had to change? I mean, I don't know the circumstances. Yeah. The CEO left. Do you think all of the work you did? help change the culture or was it a leadership change that was needed? Yeah. Well, the thing that needed to change was the openness of the leadership. Um, you know, at that time we had company jets that were flying back and forth between Utah and San Jose and they were busy. They were heavily kind of, they had the weight of the world on their shoulders. They had this massive company with all kinds of challenges. Uh, Microsoft just like nipping at the heels all the time. And they were really focused on that. So they didn't spend any time on the jets, in particular, talking to the employees, right? They would 30, 40 employees flying on the jets with them every day, and they would never talk to them. So that was just one example of how employees felt like the, the executives weren't paying attention to them. It was like the perfect opportunity for them to be like, how's it going? Like, what can I do to help you? But instead they were just like, tick, 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 and the employees felt ignored. So that was one point of many that came out in that survey. And so it was working with them to say, listen, I know your time is your own, you've got a lot of stuff to do, but you know, going around and talking to the employees when everybody's captive on a jet for an hour and a half, it would be a really good idea to kind of start building relationships and asking people how their work is doing and how their department is doing and what you can do to help them. And I think it was an aha moment for the executives because they've been just so focused on running the business and doing kind of what they do that the employees they knew were really important and they really appreciated the work they were doing. They just weren't engaging with them the way they should. So I think even just opening up that as a problem um, made them more aware of it and then they, they were doing better just with that simple thing. And we started adding more like updates from the executive team. We did the podcast and we, you know, we had like um, Eric Schmidt radio. And so, he, you know, he got more communication like one to many. And then he would do a lot more of that one to one. And I, I do think it helped actually a lot just because mm -hmm. the awareness wasn't there. Mike, can we take note of that at Company Jet and do yeah. our sure. huddles on that? Sure. Yeah. We've, got, we've already got the podcast. Perfect. The jet is next. That's a great. Lots of flight scheduling the jet, so just <laughs> warning whoever takes that responsibility <laughs> on. Uh, but we did talk about the bus. That's true. Yeah. It's very true. The, the Atlas. The huddled RTX motorhome. Mini Winnie. <laughs> <laughs> So I was assuming Eric Schmidt was the CEO. So that's really interesting. So Eric Schmidt was also the CEO of Google. 
Um, so he's one of the giants of tech. Mm -hmm. And you were telling him he needed to do better at his job. Yeah. How was that? That was intimidating. I mean, he's really brilliant. And um, it's intimidating when you're around someone who has just exists kind of on a different plane, right? He'd been like the CTO of Cisco or somewhere, and then he came over to be the CEO of Novell, and he was there for a number of years and was really quite an outstanding CEO for the business. There was just that interpersonal thing, and I think you get into a big company like that, and there's a lot of idol worship of the executives, and people are kind of really standoffish because they're like kind of hot celebs in the tech space. Yeah, you feel this in your soul. People are afraid. Uh, you see the look that Heather gave you, like, oh no, you did it. Drew is a he is a legend in his own mind. Yeah. Yes. Do you run Hooli? Oh, I'm just kidding. So um, yeah, it, it, you know, it, it is intimidating. But when again, when you have data to back it up, it's nothing personal. It's just on the paper. Seventy percent of employees are saying this, and this is something that obviously we need to address. We think the best way to address this is X, Y, and Z, and it's hard to argue against data. So, yeah. And then he, we got it all sorted, and then he left for Google. It's like, great. <laughs> Thanks. Heather, you had a question? Yeah, I, I'm actually really interested to, I think just for, for anyone who's um, navigating their career as a woman in uh, tech in Utah, are there any things that you know you kind of noticed that you've had to really navigate and learn how to navigate a little bit differently than working Tech, San Francisco, San Diego, other like outside of Utah. Yeah. Are there any things you've noticed that you're like, yeah. okay, and then how do you navigate that? How yeah. do you uh, make sure your voice is heard and, and you're able to basically move to to the goals that you set for yourself and not let being a female be the barrier? Right. And and I will say that is a challenge, and I have this conversation a lot with women in tech in Utah, and I, I think that it is a bigger part of the conversation than perhaps the male executives know, um, because there is a very patriarchal, traditional culture here. I also think because women kind of step off the career track sometimes to have family and do kind of more traditional things, um, it's more difficult, I would say, for women to stay on that kind of career advancement track. Um, and even to be considered having a seat at that table and having a voice at that table, it is, I would say, a little bit more of a struggle here than I found it to be in San Jose or in San Diego. Um, but there are really great leaders like Frank Maylett who help to cultivate that. Um, and I do think that sponsorship is really important. Um, I think uh, Kareen Clark always has said it's important to send the elevator back down. <laughs> but I do think it's important for women in leadership positions and for men in leadership positions to actively sponsor other women and people of color coming into and having a seat at that table to have a voice because diversity of thought, diversity of experience will only make an organization stronger and better. Um, when you have the same kind of experience, the same kind of voice, and a whole lot of yeses around that table, you're not going to get nearly to the more advanced, um, more successful place um, than you would if you had a bunch of divergent opinions um, 
that constructively can come together to make better decisions. Thank you. Christy, I want to give you a chance to uh, ask a question as well. Can, can, yes, because last time I felt so bad because I couldn't tell that you were trying to ask. Yeah, Martha's amazing, and she is fierce. Fierce is a really great word for Martha because she will not back down for any reason. <laughs> um, she is always humble and willing to recognize if she's not right, but she still is just like such a powerful person. I just love Martha. We reconnected a few years ago. She runs um, the uh, mentorship program at Westminster and um, was so kind to bring me in as a mentor a few years ago in that program and I loved it. Um, she is still the just ferocious, funny person that she always has been. She consults now um, for some tech companies in um, the Valley. Uh, Martha really taught me how to have a voice and to use it because I think when you're maybe younger in your career, maybe you're feeling like you're not able to stand up and have a voice to Eric Schmidt, who's the CEO of this massive company, and you're just some like 28-year-old, like, hey, we did a survey. Um, it's important to, to feel ownership of what you know is right, and if it's backed by data, you don't need to be afraid of it. And um, you can always stick your neck out, and sometimes you might lose some hair in the process, but it's always an important thing to have a voice, and I think that's, that's the primary thing that I learned from Martha. Yeah, me too. She actually had an interesting thing in that she forced you to have a voice. Yeah. She, would, she wouldn't let you just sit in a room. Like you had to, she would kind of solicit opinions. Mm -hmm. And if you did the popular opinion, she would tell you, do you really feel that way, or do you feel that way because the sun just yeah. Yeah, and I have had a lot of leaders actually do that. Um, Frank's another one who does that as well. If you're sitting around a table and there's just kind of good consensus in the room, he'll be like, Shan Shan, what do you actually think about this? And you know, really try to provoke conflict and like positive kinds of conflict, but really big conversation about like, I don't know if I believe that you believe this. Tell me exactly why. I love, I love that. And it does, it enables you to feel like you can speak up and that your opinion does matter. So that, that's a really great point. Other questions? I have a super important question. So having worked in both Wisconsin and Minnesota, mm -hmm. Vikings or Packers? Vikings all the way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Go Vikes. Go Vikes. <laughs> That's a politically sensitive topic. That is a very topic. politically sensitive topic. I will say, <laughs> my husband finished his degree at the U, so I'll say go Utes. <laughs> you can do both. It's okay. Sure. I, I just I'll go Utes. Maybe we can edit that part out. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll bleep that one. All that BYU stuff. Right. Okay. 
then I've got some. Cut the camera. Just <laughs> <laughs> Sean, you're gonna ask something. Yeah, I'm just curious. You mentioned doing hardware at Novell. What hardware did Novell? Oh, do? so I did hardware after Novell. Oh. Novell didn't do hardware. So yeah. I went to, when I went to San Diego. Uh, the CMO at Novell left and went to San Diego to work at Overland Storage. And so I did storage hardware there for, I don't even know, seven years maybe. And after that, I went to EMC. Oh. Yeah, good times in hardware. <laughs> <laughs> Exciting. Exciting. How do you feel about it, Sean? Exciting? I enjoyed hardware. <laughs> 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 Where did you really work? Commoditized. Sun. Where did you work? Sony? I Sun. Oh, Sun. And Sun Microsystems. Ah, okay. Oh, maybe that was where Eric was. Was he, was he the CTO at Sun? He, he was. Yeah, that yeah. was it. He is so smart. Yeah, Man. He, was, he was a cool guy, actually. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Michelle, as you, oh, as you look down now, again, being the planner you are, what could you share, and let's not talk a few years, like, What's 10 years down? 10 years. What could you share about what your vision for yourself is? Oh, I hope years? I'm retired in 10 years. <laughs> I, uh, I really do hope I'm retired in 10 years. Can someone like you actually retire for more than I, about well, three months? Well, I was going to say, I would like to retire out of like full-time mm. marketing leader role. And I would really love to work on um, a nonprofit mm. that is focused on women's health. Um, oh. I think there's some really cool technologies right now that are being developed. Um, and I would really love to advise or sit on a board or in some sort of volunteer capacity. I think there's so much good that's happening with technology. Um, and um, that's where I would love to be in 10 years. And opera, not part of it? Opera, not part of it. <laughs> no. <laughs> wow, you can almost hear a little bit. Oh, man. Just give it no can do. <laughs> I don't know if the glass can handle it yeah, back there. So. Exactly. <laughs> well, Michelle, thank you so much for making time this Friday morning. It's such a pleasure having you, and it's so great to hear the story. And now I know that you weren't born in Hawaii, that you were born in Michigan. Hawaii. That's right. That's a little secret there. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you.